few weeks back as we, uh, as we were beginning to look into Revelation chapter 4 and 5, I, I used the illustration that I use an illustration of a control tower that a person who might go to an airport might see all of this activity, see planes kind of parking and, and landing and taking off and, and trucks with luggage and all sorts of things going on. And it might look chaotic and haphazard until one might go into the control tower and start to hear how the somebody in charge and actually coordinating what looks like chaos is actually well organized and certainly not haphazard. And so as we come continue on in our study of the book of Revelation, it is important that we understand that God is on the throne. That was the purpose of chapters 4 and 5. There is a God in the control tower making sure that sometimes life looks utterly chaotic. Looks like we're wondering, oh my goodness, is anybody in charge of this? And when we start looking at chapters 6 through 19, 6 through 18, it is easy to come to the conclusion that this whole world is just run amok. That's why we have chapters 4 and 5. To keep us grounded in the fact that this is not haphazard, that this is not just chaotic. It's chaotic. It is horrible. But there is a God ruling in heaven. And things are working out in absolute perfection to His plan. And so the other main theme that we've been considering as we look at the book of Revelation is that what the book of Revelation really does for us is it shows us how things really are. It gives us a true view of the way things are. We look at the world and we think perhaps it is the Supreme Court who has authority and control over our lives or perhaps now the NSA. Perhaps we wonder, you know, is Vladimir Putin the ruler of the Soviet Union? I don't guess it's not called the Soviet Union today. I'm sure he would like it to be that. We look at various events that go on, whether they be global or whether they be local. What we need to realize When we come to the book of Revelation, Revelation shows us the way things really are. And we need a true view of things. We need to see that it is Jesus Christ who has the keys of death and Hades. We need to see that it is Jesus Christ who has authority to open the scrolls. We see that it is Jesus Christ who is ruling and reigning. That's the way things really are. This was important for these seven churches to whom the book of Revelation was written. Remember, they were being persecuted. Many of them were being kept from being able to purchase food or to have jobs. They were being uh, put to death for their faith. It would be easy to think that Rome was in charge. They needed to see things how they really are. They needed to see that there was a whole new definition 
to overcoming and victory. Victory was not political power. Victory was not economic power. Victory was not educational power. Victory was by submitting themselves even to death. Because the way things really are is that those who live for Christ are victors. And those who serve Rome or the beast, though it appears they are in power, are actually the ones who are doomed. And so we need to remind ourselves as we continue in the book of Revelation, and I will be reminding us of this periodically as we go through this amazing letter, that the book of Revelation was not written to predict future events. So please do not think that the book of Revelation is written so that you can figure out what's going to happen in the future. I'm not calling it, I'm not saying it's not a... Doesn't have future application. What I'm saying is when you hear of an earthquake, do not go opening up the book of Revelation to find where it fits. When you hear about a war or a rumor of war, do not go to the book of Revelation and see where it fits. It's not written for that, it's not its purpose. It reveals to us, however, the course of redemptive history, it will provide a heavenly picture or a heavenly perspective to believers. That your struggle is not in vain. It is a book that is relevant to the first century and it is a book that is relevant to the 21st century. It is a book that is relevant to those to whom it was written. It is a book that is relevant to you and me today. It was a book that was relevant if you lived in the Dark Ages. It was a book that was relevant if you lived during... The Reformation, it was a book that was relevant if you were living in the Enlightenment. It is a book that will be relevant if Christ does not return. It will be relevant in another thousand years. And so, again, we saw chapter 4 and 5. Just by way of review, it was presented the reader, presented us with a view of God's throne room. And an awesome picture of what's going on even now in the very presence of God. It is an awesome place. John struggles to describe it. I mean, think about it. Describe heaven. What are you going to say? This is why he says, you know, I saw one sitting on the throne and he looked like precious jewels. I don't know what else to say. This is what it looked like to me. This is why John describes, you know, streets that were, were like gold. I, I don't know that they're actually gold. But John's just using human language to describe something. Going, this is amazing. That's in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Now, just to give you a little preview of where we're going. We saw last week that the Lamb who's seated on the throne, who is Jesus Christ. He took the scroll that was in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne, and we understood that scroll basically to be the outworking of God's redemptive plan. You can go back and listen to that sermon or read those notes to uh, see how we arrived at that. 
But now what we are going to see in Revelation chapter 6, 1 through 8, 1, we're going to see the first series of judgments that will lead to the second coming. We need to understand that it is the Lamb who is seated on the throne who is in control of things. This is really crucial for us to understand. Now when these seals are open, it is the Lamb who is opening the seals. It is the Lamb who is unleashing these things. These horrific events are not satanically authorized. They are heavenly authorized. So, we come to what may be one of the great challenges of Revelation 6, 1 through 8, 1. And it is imperative that we have a biblical worldview of what's going on. That we have a theocentric or a God-centered understanding of who God is. Because what's going to happen in the, un, in the breaking of these seven seals may, if you are not guided by Scripture, but by some folk idea about who God is and who Jesus is, if you are not guided by a biblical understanding of who Jesus is and who the Father is, these chapters may cause cause you to stumble. They are extremely difficult. And so I would challenge you to have a strong understanding of who God is, what God has done, and to conform your thinking around the biblical revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, as we look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, in our study, we go through a book at a time. I think that's the best way to teach, rather than me just figuring out what subject I like the best, and then talking about it. Because then we'd always just talk about the sovereignty of God and probably nothing else. (laughs) Yeah, that would be cool. But you know what? We need a well-rounded view of Scripture. And so as we go through one book at a time, we go through a New New Testament book. When we're done with this, we'll go back to the Old Testament. And we'll we'll, uh, make sure that we have a well-rounded understanding of all that God has to say. So somebody has asked me, how often do you teach on such and such a topic? And I just say, well, as often as the Bible teaches on it. (laughs) When it comes up, it's there. And when we come up with hard subjects, we deal with hard subjects and difficult texts. And we're going to come to some difficult texts. Anyways, let's read. Genesis, I'm sorry, Genesis, I'm still. (laughs) Jen. Genesis is so 2013. <laughs> For those of you who are not aware, we studied the book of Genesis prior to the book of Revelation. So, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As 
with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. And when he had broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Then the lamb broke the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over the fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So before we look at this very famous passage of scripture, the, the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse, Many books and stories and paintings and carvings and all sorts of things have been portrayed about these four horsemen. Let me introduce just some background material as we enter into this. First of all, it is no accident of Scripture that these passages parallel almost exactly Matthew 24. So as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives and began to teach his disciples, remember they went up to the Mount of Olives and uh, they said, look at the temple and how beautiful it is and, and how wonderful it is. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left standing upon one another. And they said, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? Jesus then began what is known as the Olivet Discourse, which would talk about when will the temple be torn down and what will be the sign of his coming. We should not be surprised that Revelation chapter 6, John, who sat and heard that incredible sermon, um, follows that sermon precisely. We see the cycle of wars and rumors of wars. We see famine. We see earthquakes. We see false Christ. And all of these, Jesus said, are the beginning of birth pangs. We should note also, as we go through this, as I, I alluded to earlier, that the judgments of the seals proceed from Jesus Christ himself. That's right. The wars, the rumors of wars, and all of those things thought, proceed from Jesus Christ. These are not accidental. They are not even satanic in their origin. I believe they are satanic, but it is Christ who calls them forth. And it is Christ who unleashes them. It is Christ who is in control of all of this. I would suggest that the horrors presented in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and actually all the way through 8 through 8, 1, have been occurring since the overcoming resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
We should also note that Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 um, echoes Zechariah 6 where we also see four chariot riders with various colored horses going forth to represent God's judgment on the enemies of Judah. And they go out to the four corners of the earth. You would do well to read Zechariah chapter 6, especially the first, first few verses. But you will see a great echo or a parallel there. Remember, John loves the book of Zechariah. John loves the book of Daniel. John loves Ezekiel. And he is constantly referencing those, those passages. So you should... Um, when we look at the book of Revelation, we interpret it through the Old Testament. Why? Because Scripture interprets Scripture, number one. John uses those passages to, uh, to show us what's going on, and in many ways, Revelation is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. So, with that as our introduction, let's get into the nature of these writers. And then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given him. And he went, about, went out conquering and to conquer. So, of course, the first question is, who is this? We always want to try to identify who these are, who all of these images apply to. Well, there have been a number of suggestions put forth, and one suggestion that has been put forth is that the rider on this white horse is Jesus himself. The reason people would suggest that it is Jesus himself is because he's riding on a white horse with a crown. And in Revelation chapter 19, we see Jesus riding on a white horse, coming in glory on a white horse. We also see Jesus um, wearing a crown. So it is not... Um, too surprising then that somebody might suggest that this rider on the white horse is in fact Jesus because of the similarities. There's a, a couple of issues, however, that we would note. First of all, it's, I, I find it difficult that it would be Jesus for a number of reasons. Number one, there's a technical difference between the type of crown he's wearing um, in this passage and the crown that he wears in later passages. The fact that he has a bow as opposed to a sword, some of those issues. The other challenge here is that um, I looked and behold, and it, I'm sorry, that he was given a crown this is what we call a divine passive. Jesus rightfully wears a crown. There is no authority in heaven on earth to whom Jesus submits himself to receive a crown. He, by nature, is the king, and so he wears a crown. It also seems a little odd that Jesus would be the one who opens the seal and then the subject of the seal itself, which seems a little strange. I don't think this is Jesus. 
Others have put forth um, that this is the Antichrist. And I think we're getting a little bit closer, though I would still um, question that. And the reason being... Um, well, the reason I would say that it's not the Antichrist is because it does not fit the pattern of impersonal forces of the other writers. The other writers are things like war. That's an impersonal force, not an individual. Plans. That's an impersonal force, it's not an individual. It would seem strange that this one's a, a personal figure while all the other three um, of this cohesive group. One is personal and the other three are impersonal. So I don't think that it's in the, quote, the Antichrist. I could probably go along with the idea that it is the spirit of Antichrist. But to say it is actually the Antichrist, I struggle with. I just don't think it fits. But it's close. Here's what I think. I think that what we are talking about here is that this is a messianic pretender, a false Christ. It's no, we shouldn't be surprised that he looks like Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24? See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And in Revelation chapter 12 and 13, is we see the beast and the dragon, and that's the whole satanic entourage mimicking Christ. We're going to see a false trinity. We're going to see a false resurrection. We're going to see a fake Messiah. He looks like Jesus, but he is not Jesus. And he went about conquering and to conquer. This Greek word, nikaio, um, really everywhere else in the Bible, except here, it is translated to overcome. And um, I'm not saying conquering is a bad, uh, uh, you know, a faulty uh, translation. I just think we should note that everywhere else, except there's one other place, and he uses a word that um, eludes me at the time, at this time, but it's always a, the one who overcomes. It's used of saints who overcome. It's used of Christ who overcomes. It speaks of satanic forces that overcome the saints. And it speaks of saints who overcome satanic forces, and they overcame with the word of their testimony and with the blood of Christ. He looks like Jesus, but he is not Jesus. He overcomes or he conquers through deception, through persecution, or both. And he leads this terrible cavalry of violence, famine, and death. You see, Satan would attempt to conquer the saints through suffering so that they would despair of the faith. This is why throughout the book of Revelation we see this term overcome, overcome, overcome. We see Christ as the overcomer. We see the saints are encouraged, overcome. No matter what it takes, conquer. And so we begin to see the warning where Jesus says, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. Don't follow them. They're not the Christ. There are going to be many imitations. There are going to be many deceivers. 
but they are not the Christ. And then we see a second horse. He broke the second seal, and I heard the second living creature say, Come, and another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Once again, we notice that this rider is summoned by one of the four living creatures that surround the throne of God. So heaven basically summons this rider forth. And it is granted to take, and it was granted for him to take peace from the earth and was given a sword. Once again, we see this divine passive. And what I mean by a divine passive, just every once in a while, if you're visiting, every once in a while, we kind of get all grammar on you. So, sorry. But you know what a passive is, right? A passive verb is just the. Um, where the subject receives the action, right? So if I were to say the boy hit the ball, right, that's active. The boy is the subject, he does the hitting of the ball. If, if, if I say the boy was hit by the ball, the boy is the subject, he's being hit, he's passive. Don't mean to get all weird on you, but this is a passive. In other words, the subject is not doing the action. The subject is receiving the action. It was granted to him to make war. He, he doesn't have authority in and of himself to make war. The authority comes from outside of himself. He was given authority. By who? By the very throne of God. By Christ himself. And he was given a sword. He does not have a sword. He doesn't take up a sword. It's a passive. Heaven gives him, authority, gives him a sword. That's why we call it a divine passive. It is being given to him by the divine. It is being given to him by God. And so this war is coming about. Um, it is granted to take peace from the earth. He's allowed to take peace from the earth. He has no authority in and of himself to take peace from the earth. He simply has been given that authority. And he's been given a sword. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. War is probably the most obvious form of slaughter, which is one of the words that is used here, that, he would, that men would slay one another. Literally, men would slaughter one another. And war is certainly the most obvious form of slaughtering, but I think that the picture here is broad enough to encompass all slaughter of human life. Folks, there have been wars continually from the time of Christ, and there will continually be wars until the return of Jesus Christ. We're, we've been told that more lives were lost during the 20th century, more lives were lost in war during the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. Birth pains. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. But understand, these are birth pains. That is, they get more intense and they get closer together. We should also note that there will be no peace until Jesus comes. That doesn't mean we can't do our best to try to do what we can to limit, cease, and stop war. 
there will be wars until the day that Jesus Christ arrives. And even when Jesus comes, there will be one final war. It's not much of one. When we read the Battle of Armageddon, really not much, is it? <laughs> kind of anticlimactic. All these people gather for this great big battle, and then boom, it's over. <laughs> Jesus shows up, speaks a couple words, done. <laughs> not much of a battle. And then there will be peace. Finally, or I'm sorry, third, there's a third writer. And when he broke the third seal, I, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Basically, this is famine. War is devastating. The previous writer was war. War is devastating. One of the things that it devastates is food. Especially in the days in which this was written, that the readers of this letter would have perfectly understood. See, when armies came through, they would just steal your crops. They would, they would take your garden and consume it themselves. And then when they left, they would burn it. So that you would have nothing left. And if there was a siege... What is the siege? We just basically starve you out. They would, they would destroy all of your crops. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, and there will be famines. What's going on here is we see famine. We also see inflationary prices. Upwards of an 800% increase of the price for wheat and for barley is pictured here, which results in economic turmoil, which of course results in more famine. But we also see it's limited in scope. Once again, who's in charge of this? This horse is not the one in authority because the voice from heaven says, do not destroy the oil and the wine. A couple of ideas there on what that could mean I, simply, I think the simplest explanation is that there are divine limits this is heaven in control this famine rider is not the authority famine is not the authority he is not in control God is in control we also see this is common grace we see restrained judgment and God even blessing people who are unbelievers with oil and wine. So God punishes sin, but God is gracious and his judgment is restrained. The fourth writer, And when the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature come. And I looked and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name of death. And Hades was following him. With him, authority was given to him over the fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, and they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. This writer portrays the grisly effects of the previous three. He kind of sums up the previous three. He has a sword. He brings. He brings famine. You'll notice again, authority was given to him. There's that divine passive. Once again, he has no inherent authority. Authority is given to him. Death and Hades 
His name is Death. Hades is following with him, and he's given authority to kill with a sword, with famine, and with plague, and with wild beasts. His name is Death, and Hades follows after him. Certainly these churches, when they received this letter, remembered way back to chapter 1, where Jesus says, Behold, I have the keys of death and Hades. I want you to understand that it is Jesus who is fully in control. They killed with sword, with famine, with plague, and with wild beasts. I think that this wild beast is certainly that there are actually wild beasts killing people. We see that through scripture. But I also think that we would do well to remember that this is the way Christians were killed, or one of the ways Christians were killed in the first century to the first readers of this letter. This is how they were killed. A while back I read to you um, a historical document called the Epistle to Diognetius. You should read that. It's not scripture, but it is a very, very early letter um, written first part of the second century about Christian persecution and talking about how believers were delivered up to the Roman Colosseums to be torn apart by beasts. I think when it says the death being and wild beasts being part of that, certainly there are just being killed by wild beasts, but I think that we would we would be short-sighted if we did not realize that this is also talking about Christians who are being delivered up to wild beasts. Well, let me give a brief summary and then some application. Because this is pretty dark. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and Matthew 24, verses 3 through 9, um, provide for us a history of mankind. There have always been false Christs, and there always will be false Christs. There will always be wars, there will be famines, and death will mark the flow of human history. These seals are judgments on those who do not worship the true God and the true Savior, Jesus Christ. We should also note that this fourfold judgment is, is not uncommon in Scripture. We see a very similar fourfold judgment in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 24 through 26. And we also see this fourfold judgment in Ezekiel. I told you John likes Ezekiel. Let me read some selected passages from Ezekiel chapter 14, 14 through 21. Listen to this. Verse 14, And even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declared the Lord. Verse 15, If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they depopulated it, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through because of the wild beasts. Verse 17, Or if I should bring a sword on that country and say, Let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beasts. Verse 19, or if I should send plague against that country and pour out my wrath and blood and cut it off. And then listen to verse 21. 
For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beast, plague, to cut off man and beast from it. These are four judgments that God uses historically to bring judgment against those who will not bow the knee. This is God's common means of judging those who would rebel against Christ as the rightful king. So, my goal here is not to scare you or depress you or to cause fear because I don't think that's the purpose of the book of Revelation. It is not scaring us, well, maybe a little, to the throne. I want you to understand this. First of all, God uses satanic agents to both judge and to sanctify. I mean, the question is, how can God use this? If all of these judgments are coming from God, and he's using these satanic, satanic elements, how is it that God is using these evil forces to bring about his purposes? I told you chapter 6 would challenge you. I told you, if you don't have a biblical understanding of who God is, you're going to really struggle in chapter 6. And here we are. This is God on the throne using wicked forces to bring about his purposes. We might say, how does that happen? We see this all the way through Scripture. God using evil forces to bring about his purposes. We see it in First Chronicles. We see it in First Samuel. We see that God sent a deceiving spirit to deceive. We see this all over the place. We say, well, all right, well, I can get my hands around that. What about God's people? I mean, this would affect God's people, wouldn't it? I would remind you of the plagues in Egypt. Some of the plagues did not affect the people of Israel, but many of them did. And when bad things happened in Egypt, bad things happened to God's people. And they suffered. Jewish scholars tell us that when the plagues hit Egypt, that it caused the Egyptians, especially Pharaoh, to harden his heart, and it caused the people of Israel to cry out on their knees for deliverance to God. Do you see what God is doing? God is bringing about his judgment, and he is bringing the sanctification of his people and the judgment of those who oppose him. We should not be surprised that God uses such things to bring them. God uses these things and they will bring judgment on the ones who fail to recognize that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he will use it to sanctify and bring his saints into conformity with his purposes and call them to fall on their face and draw near to God. 
I'll give you a great example. Remember the cross, Jesus on the cross. Horrible judgment. Two men crucified with Jesus. Same judgment. One hardened his heart, and one came to salvation. God uses the same judgment, and he saves one, and another is judged. This is how God. Do not be surprised that God operates in such a bit, such a way. This would bring comfort, of course, to the original readers. Because the original readers would read this and see that it is not Rome who is in control of things. And Rome will not withstand the judgments of the Lamb. And just as God brought Egypt to her knees, God will rule over God will rule. God brings down empires. He will raise them up and he will bring them down. But the bottom line is this. Jesus is in control. I hope we learn that from the book of Revelation. That it is Jesus who is in control. Rome, in the book of Revelation, is not in control. The state is not in control. The state has authority to execute and to bring its own form of judgment. But even then, when they do, what happens? Those saints are covered by and sheltered under the very altar of God. And they will be raised up on the last day. And they will be, and they will enter into the presence of God victorious. I'll conclude with this. Because God has poured out his wrath on his own son, Jesus Christ. Let's not forget that. We think, well, how can God bring about his wrath on people? He brought forth his own wrath upon Jesus Christ, bore the full burden of the wrath of God for sinful men, for you and for me. Jesus suffered the undiluted, unfiltered, full weight of the wrath of God for you and for me. And because God has poured out His own wrath upon His own Son, Jesus Christ, believers never need to fear the wrath of God and the judgment to come. If you have accepted Christ as your Savior and you, have, you are walking in Him, I tell you right now, if you breathe your last breath and you walk out of here, you will not need to fear the wrath and judgment of God. That judgment has already been poured out upon Jesus Christ. He's bored in full on your behalf. Not one drop, not one minuscule amount was spared. You bear none of it. I will tell you this. If, you're, if you have not made a decision... follow Jesus Christ as Lord then you will bear the full wrath of God on your own that's really the deal so who, somebody's going to bear the wrath of God the wrath of God against sin is a real thing so here's the deal you can bear it yourself or you can say Lord would you bear it on my behalf and the day you say that I guarantee here's the deal that wrath is born Jesus Christ will take you and say your sins are forgiven I took them that's part of the book of Revelation. So we read about this wrath 
I want you to understand that Jesus bore the wrath on your behalf. I want you to understand that wars and rumors of war, pestilence, these are all signs that things are not right with the world. How many of you can look at the newspaper or read an account and think that somehow things are right? This tells us that, man, things are messed up. I mean, one of our great tools of, of evangelism, man, look around, things aren't right. I'm not necessarily a half glass empty guy. I don't think they're getting better, though. Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, these are all signs that things are not right with the world. Gosh, I was listening to a guy talk about the refugee camps in Cameroon, those people who are fleeing war. Oh my goodness. Perhaps this isn't great. I had to turn the channel. Watch a hockey game or something. She probably pay more attention. Terrific. What people are going through. We as a church need to be involved in alleviating what we can. But things are not right. Because things are not right, we should be longing for our eternal home. When we look around and you read the news, if this does not cause you to say, come Lord Jesus, if this does not say, Lord, this place is just messed up. I hear we want to populate Mars now. What are we going to do, mess that place up? <laughs> put somebody up there and mess up Mars right now. It didn't do anything to us. I also want to let you know that we, as we look through the book of Revelation, there is still time to repent. And that is what is required, repent. I know it's an old-fashioned word, and we tend to think of some guy standing out on the corner with a big sign saying, repent. Well... I'm not standing on the corner with a big sign, but I'm saying repent. I mean, turn around and walk the other way. And I hope as we go through the book of Revelation, it causes a longing for your home, because the Bible tells us that this world is not our home. Right? That we serve, we are ambassadors. We need to keep that in mind. We're ambassadors, which means our homeland is somewhere else. We just represent that homeland in a foreign country. We are in a foreign land. We represent another one. But one day, our Commander-in-Chief, our King, will say it's time to come home. So we say, Lord, come quickly. Amen. Let's stand and let's pray and we'll sing our last song. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you. And there is none like you.